Welcome to the Hearsay Storytelling Podcast. I'm Karen Stein. Hearsay is a show dedicated to the art of telling stories on stage. That said, right now we are still in the time of COVID and under isolation orders. This episode, Hearsay Goes Homesay, Acts of Kindness, was self-recorded in performers' homes in April 2020. In our first story, an act of kindness in a grocery store is exactly what Dave Murphy needs. It was a simple act with profound consequences. At least it was profound for me. I was in a grocery store. A young man saw me. He actually saw me. He said, let me help. I could only nod. He took my bag. He took my arm. He helped me to my car. He made sure I was in. Then he placed the bag inside and wished me well. It's almost overwhelming to think about it. When young, I was a college-level athlete, no superstar, just a physical person. My father collapsed of a heart attack in front of me when I was nine, and he died hours later. An event like that has a lifelong impact. I exercised hard, always working to stay in good shape. But when the young man helped me out of the grocery store, I was broken. Not by age, but I was broken. Eight months before the grocery store incident, I was still exercising like a fiend. Then a common medical condition hit, a kidney stone. Except what followed wasn't at all common. Mistake after mistake was made during treatment, leaving me in nightmarish pain. The absence of sleep led to a heart issue that complicated an already dangerous situation. The total fallout from the errors was permanent damage to my kidneys, ureter, bladder, and heart. It took over a dozen procedures to put me back together, and I will never be the same. The toll that seven months of relentless renal colic, which is widely recognized as among the worst pain the human body can experience, is next to impossible to describe. One physician said, I don't know how you survived. Your only choices were hopeless addiction to narcotics or blow your brains out. I considered and rejected both. I made it, but barely. Despite so many procedures, so many mistakes, so many debasing moments of lost control over my body, a body that I'd worked so hard to maintain, there was one moment above all that stands out in terms of humiliation and shame. I returned to the urology practice again and again asking for help. I admit I'm a stoic guy, but when asked to rate the pain on a scale of 1 to 10, I said, there are times where the pain is so bad I can hardly take it. It's near a 10 at those times. Again, I said it without theatrics, but I said it. The surgeon and his physician assistant convinced themselves that I was stone-free and any remaining problems were due to scar tissue that would heal. They were wrong. They left a large stone in me. It was damaging my kidney. I was chronically bleeding. I was up at least a half a dozen times every night vomiting or in serious pain. And the worst of it was becoming increasingly sleep-deprived. I couldn't even represent myself properly when I'd have these physician encounters. On one trip to see the physician assistant, she entered the room and sat down with her laptop. I explained how bad the pain remained. Instead of looking at me, she gazed into her computer screen. Then when she spoke, she had her chin raised high, and she seemed to be studying the wall and ceiling behind me. And she said, Dave, you just aren't handling this very well, are you? I mean, I have other patients who've had the same size stone as you. They're doing so much better and in a shorter time, too. I'm sorry that you're having such a hard time with this, but you are just not handling it well. I walked out of the office and back to my car, and I sat there asking myself, what is wrong with you? 
don't you want to feel better? Was I malingering for some reason? She shamed me. And she was dead fucking wrong. She wasn't listening. And she sure wasn't seeing me. If she'd been looking, she'd have seen a human being in pain. Instead, she lectured and insulted while studying drywall. I was finally able to get the proper test through another physician who greeted me by saying, what on earth is wrong with you? You look horrible. When the test showed the problem, the situation became urgent. I went to another urology practice. It took three more procedures, including a rare and rather radical surgery to save the kidney. The surgery was brutally painful, and it did gory things to such sensitive parts of the anatomy that would take months to heal. Coming home from that surgery after seven months of agony, only to be in peak pain post-surgery, I truly questioned the purpose of living. It was weeks after that surgery when most of the hardware stabilizing me came out, then I was free to try some things on my own. I made a big mistake. I went to that grocery store that I mentioned, and it was way too soon. I could feel the nausea and pain intensifying, so I rushed through the checkout. By the time I got to the door to leave, I was on the verge of passing out. That's when the young man appeared. He saw me. He actually looked at me and recognized a person in need. The young man's help with my groceries and getting me in the car was important, but a total stranger actually seeing my need, actually seeing me, helping me without asking, it was an amazing gesture because it gave me hope in people. I go to that store at least once a week. It's been seven years now. The door to the store has been moved from where I exited seven years ago, but every time I'm there, I study the spot where I nearly passed out, but thankfully, someone came to help. I wouldn't recognize the young man if I'd see him again because of the condition I was in, but I think of him every single time I'm there. There will never be a time I visit when I won't think of him. His kindness was healing. Hope, especially in humanity, is a priceless gift, and I hope, too, that somehow he hears this story. In the next story, Rob Ford thinks he's got a great plan to help those who might not realize they need it. On New Year's Eve, 1981, I was night auditor at the Park Place Hotel. Uh, night auditor meant that you went to work at 11 o'clock at night and you worked until 7 o'clock in the morning. And I will tell you one other thing about 1981. It was a different time in that a lot of people drank heavily, and then got behind the wheel of the car and drove home. Uh, the penalties were not nearly as, as strict as they are today. There was not Uber or Lyft or many other options. In fact, in Traverse City, there was one small cab company, and that was it. Anyway, I went to work on uh, New Year's Eve of 1981, and uh, when you show up at work at 11 o'clock in, in the evening, you are the one sober person at the party, and everybody was having a pretty good time. Shortly after midnight, a gentleman came out of one of the parties throughout the hotel and stopped and talked to me at the front desk. He was obviously very, very drunk. And I thought, well, I'll perform a little random act of kindness. And I just calmly swept his car keys away from him as we stood there talking at the desk. I said, yeah, his party will eventually find him or 
something will happen. He won't be behind the wheel when it does, though. Anyway, uh, he left and uh, kind of lost uh, track of which way he went. I didn't know if he left or whether he went back to a party. But a few minutes later, uh, someone came in from the parking lot and said that uh, there's a gentleman outside throwing up in the snowbank. And uh, it crossed my mind that it might be my friend. Uh, and then uh, a couple seconds later, someone came in and said, yeah, he's throwing up. And his wife is kicking the crap out of him for losing the car keys. And then I knew. I knew that was this was my guy. So uh, I was patient. I didn't go outside. Uh, eventually, they did come inside. And uh, um, I identified him. And I gave him the car keys. And uh, I didn't apologize for him getting uh, kicked uh, Kicked in the ribs for losing the car keys. But anyway, that was my act of kindness. Next, Chris Rasmussen questions a get well gift that arrives in the mail. I am sitting on the couch watching all my children wondering if Greg and Jenny are going to get back together or whether or not Tad and Liza will finally have the revenge. When my mother brings me a crumpled, grease-stained package that has come in the mail, I burst into smiles. It's been over two weeks since I'd gotten a Get Well card and a present in the mail. I was feeling a little neglected. You see, three months ago, while dodging and weaving the traffic on Grand River Avenue in East Lansing, I had been hit by a car. Broken bones and damaged nerves and numerous surgeries forced me to drop out of school. And while my friends were truly amazing when I was in the hospital, when I was discharged to rehab at home, my friends had to go on with their busy lives of classes and parties and football games and plays. So... The number of get well cards, flowers, and stuffed animals being delivered were getting fewer and fewer until, well, nothing. So I was grateful for whatever was in that brown paper bag sealed with really flimsy scotch tape. Ripping open the bag, I discovered Chips Ahoy cookies. Actually, not Chips Ahoy cookies. Chips Ahoy cookie crumbs. My friends, the ones who bought me roses and a 16-inch tall William Shakespeare would not send me Chips Ahoy cookies. Who would do this? I see a piece of notebook paper inside the package, and again I think, who can't make an effort to make a card or buy a card? But I open the note, and I see the chicken scratch, and I look at the bottom of the note, and see a signature. Harvey. Harvey? Harvey sent me cookies? Sort of. I mean, wow, the effort it took for him to grab them off the grocery store shelf. I bet they were on sale. I bet they're past the expiration date. Harvey was my least favorite professor in college. Now, to be sure, he was a legend at my college theater department. His stories of how he ran away with a circus when he was a teenager and how he had psychedelic drug trips at orgies in the 70s 
were big, big crowd pleasers with the kids. It didn't matter if he was teaching 19th century theater history or introduction to children's theater. Harvey would spend most of the class performing his one-man show and assigning very little homework. Like I said, according to RateMyProfessor.com, he's almost a theater god. Except to me. From the first day of his survey of theater class, the two of us didn't really hit it off. There was a little comment he made the first week of class about the Amy Grant pin I wore on the shoulder pad of my boyfriend blazer, followed by a comment in his lecture that every class always had to have one Jesus freak who wanted to throw a Bible at him. I thought that was a pretty powerful overreaction to a $2 plastic pin I had bought two years ago. Then there was my refusal to audition for his production of the Greek comedy Lysistrata when I heard that he was going to make the men wear huge plaster male um, appendages and was only casting women with huge breasts. You'd be perfect for the show, Chris. I really wish you'd audition for me. He whispered to me more than once on my way out of class. And then there was the time toward the end of the semester when he told me one particularly graphic anecdote that left me squirming in my seat once I think I figured out what he was talking about, so I got up and walked out of class early. Somehow that moment turned into a rumor in the department that I had gotten so angry with him in class that I threw a book at him before I walked out. And this really disappointed me because I didn't think of actually throwing a book at him, and in hindsight, I really wish I had. So with curiosity, I read his entire letter. It starts out pretty generic. He's sorry to hear about my accident. He wishes me a speedy recovery, blah, 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 blah. But then he says he's sorry. Now, not for anything specific, not for X-rated tales in class or my choice in music or his comments directed towards my anatomy, but it was a broad apology, recognizing his lack of sensitivity and respect toward the opposite sex as a teacher, as a person. He had fallen in love recently and wanted to finally, at his age, figure out how to be a great husband and father, and therefore he realized he needed to learn how to be, well, a better human. He told me he appreciated my strong opinions, my energy, my tenacity. Looking back on that letter now, it was actually a pretty impressive letter, pretty woke, actually, considering this is decades before the Me Too movement. So Harvey's act of kindness was not those cookies, because no way did I eat those crumbs. But his act of kindness was in offering up words that gave someone the power to feel validated and seen instead of objectified and dismissed. Next up, it takes some time and some help for John Klapko to take his driver's test. My name is John. I'm 35 years old. I have been a driver for two of those years. Mm-hmm. I, <laughs> I didn't get my driver's license until I was 33 years old. 
I should probably sound more ashamed of that fact. See, I failed the test twice in high school. The first time I ran a stop sign, uh, which was total bullshit because the instructor distracted me with a dumb question right as I was coming up on the intersection. I, uh, I also almost hit a dog. I mean, that was, that was total bullshit too, because the thing ran out in front of me and I, I slammed on the brakes. I didn't hit it. I mean, technically I avoided an obstacle. So, I mean, I, I don't think it should count against me. The second time, which was, I think it was a few weeks later. I know it was a really long time ago. Uh, so it's hard to say. I think it was a few weeks later. Uh, I cut a guy off while I changed lanes to make a right-hand turn. 35-year-old me understands that you cannot run stop signs and cut people off. It's dangerous. It puts lives at stake. 16-year-old me thought it was utter bullshit and would not accept that he was simply a bad driver. It's so obvious to me now that I, I just wasn't ready. I needed more practice. I didn't, I didn't have the awareness. I barely noticed how like tense and balled up the instructor was the whole, the whole time I was driving and he was sitting right next to me. So of course I missed the car in my blind spot as I changed lanes. Failing twice in a row was more than like my fragile teenage ego could, could, could endure. Um, and instead of practicing and taking the test a third time, I just decided to not. I didn't want to risk failing a third time. I mean, I was already one of the weird kids at school. I couldn't be the weird kid who also failed his driving test three times like a stupid loser. So I never took the test again. I mean, I did, but not till way, way, way later. But my plan worked. For almost 20 years, I functioned without a driver's license. It wasn't so bad. I enjoy walking. When I was at MSU, I lived on or close to the campus, so it was only a problem when it was time to go home. And my mom worked in Lansing, so it really wasn't much of a problem. After graduation, I lived in New York and Chicago, so again, not having a license wasn't too much of a problem. I mean, I didn't, I didn't really talk about it unless I absolutely had to when I was around people. There aren't too many ways to, to spin not having your driver's license. People either think you're an alcoholic or, I mean, I don't know. They think, they think it got taken away or you committed a crime, whatever. Uh, so to like smooth it over when the topic came up, I would say things like, oh, you know, I'm just, it's my way of lowering my carbon footprint or, oh, you know, I saved so much money because I don't have a car payment and I don't have to pay insurance. And I'm sure people saw right through my attempts to make it funny. The truth is I was just, I was more willing to burden my friends and my family to severely limit my job options, to, to alienate almost any potential partner than I was to risk failing again. So for most of my life, I swept that difficult truth right under the rug. It fit nice and neat right between my reasons for drinking so darn much and the baggage preventing me from having a relationship that lasted more than three months. Then I moved to Traverse City. Whatever else moving is good for, it's good for changing old habits and establishing new ones. I quit smoking. I started eating better. I chilled out with my drinking. I started flossing. And once I'd done all that, I thought about trying to get my license. But the only thing worse than failing a driving test three times in a row as a teenager is failing three times in a row as a fully grown adult who should already have one anyway. <laughs> 
So instead, I got a promotion at work, and then a raise, and then I ran out of things to work on, so I decided I could just take the written test and renew my learner's permit. I didn't have to tell anyone, unless I passed. If I failed, I could just work at the grocery store for the rest of my life and ride my bike everywhere. I passed. The hardest part was avoiding the soul-crushing wait at the Secretary of State's office. I had everything I needed to start the rest of my life, except for a car. Now, I couldn't ask my roommate or my parents or my family because I, I, was, I was too ashamed. They carted me around all these years. They knew my history. I couldn't take the test in their vehicles without it psyching me out. And I couldn't be psyched out while I was trying to pass a driving test. Luckily, I had made a friend at my job. Patty. Patty was the score, uh, Patty was the, the, the scan coordinator at the grocery store I worked at. She is a mom, a really good cook, a great sewer, and is not to be fucked with under any circumstances. She and I both worked mornings and would complain about management or whatever else while we hung signs before the church rush on Sundays. She wasn't the first to offer to help me, but she was the only one who kept asking and kept asking while I dragged my feet and, and put it off. She let me drive a little bit in her car before, uh, before the test day. I also took my mom's truck out, uh, when she came to visit me. Um, I guess I wasn't really worried about embarrassing myself in front of my mom because she used to change my diapers. So, I mean, I'm, I don't know. I didn't get a ton of practice in, but I was ready to try. I figured I could, I could fail two more times with Patty before I had to give up completely, move to a different state and, find someone else's car to use. So the, the day came, we pulled up to the testing location in Patty's Jeep. The proctor looked like he would rather be anywhere else on earth, and he humorlessly told us that Patty would have to stay behind while I took the test. I expected her to put up a fight, but she didn't say a word, which disappointed me because part of our plan was for her to distract him while I drove. I pretended not to piss my pants while the proctor and I got in the car and started the test. Things went really, really, really great. Uh, until I, I stopped over the line at a, at a light. It wasn't super far over the line. It was just a couple feet. The real problem was it happened to be the longest red light in the history of mankind. I'm serious. We were stopped for like 10 minutes at this light. And the whole time, all I could think about was how I was a full two feet over the stupid painted line. And then finally it turned green. So I accelerate and I, I make a joke about how I think we just got a small taste of what hell must be like. You know, because the light was so long, I say. The proctor says something noncommittal and then fusses with this clipboard, so I assume I've failed at this point, until he instructs me to make a lane change and pass the guy in front of me. Most of my practice uh, had just been around town on side streets, not much passing or lane changing. I'm pissing my pants again because I have a bad history with lane changes, but I try to ignore the fear and I, I just go for it. I kind of flub the mirror check, and there's a little bit of a swerve, but he doesn't say anything. Even though I'm, I'm sure that like my score is definitely ruined now. We get to the parking lot, and the only thing standing in between me and my license is the parallel parking segment. At least that's what I assume. I mean, I must, I must still have a chance, otherwise he would have said something at this point, right? The guy kind of looks like he might have a sinister bent to him, but it, it's hard to tell because he hardly talks. I managed to squeeze the Jeep between the cones, and it's crooked... And I can't remember how many moves he gave me to correct uh, things. So finally, I just, I cut the engine and I, I give him a shrug. He looks at me. I look at him. He looks at Patty and 
probably wonders why I brought my mom to a driving test, but that's none of his business anyway. I look at Patty, we both look at him, and he tells me I passed. He says, he says I had a little trouble with checking my mirrors, but that I'll, I'll get it. He doesn't mention my awesome joke. As a thank you, I took Patty out for sushi later that month. I think she appreciated it, and that's good. I, I don't know how to thank a person for permanently changing your life for the better. But I guess sushi is a decent start. She might think it's cool to have a thank you from a podcast. So I'll say it again on here, and, and maybe she'll get a kick out of it. Um, thank you, Patty. And in our last story, a major disruption in Vara Cooper's life leads to a chance encounter. In April of 2018, my life exploded when I left my partner of almost 10 years. Then I set all the bits and pieces on fire, and then I napalmed the debris and ashes. And all this to say that by September of 2018, I found myself in a unique position that awkwardly qualified as homeless. I owned a home where I was no longer safe. I was paying rent in a place I'd already moved out of. And I was in contract for a new place that wouldn't be ready for another 25 days. And I was tattered from running and hiding for five months. My dogs were in Atlanta. My stuff was in storage. I was getting my mail in two different P.O. boxes and a friend's house in two different states. And I was just driving, searching for a sense of self, safety, or something to help me not just survive those 25 days, but to get me into and through the entire lifetime I was responsible for after that. I was out of steam. I was out of ideas. I was out of hope. I had no idea what the future held for me. And since my dogs were safe and comfortable elsewhere, I really didn't care anymore. Because I'm a white woman who managed to look mostly clean, attractive and put together enough, at least at a glance, nobody assumed or guessed or even believed I was homeless at all. So I was never perceived as a threat or a pity case. I just remained the revered, delicate object of casual social desire at every highway rest stop and grocery store and post office. And we can all surmise the loneliness inherent to being homeless anxiety and fear and uncertainty. But something I couldn't have anticipated about being even just technically and temporarily homeless is the challenge of making small talk in places like grocery stores and gas stations and post offices. Everywhere I went, hotels, coffee shops, lawyers' offices, people asked me a hundred times a week, where are you from? And I always struggled to answer. Because if I wanted to be honest, I could have said New York. But I haven't lived in New York in over 10 years. And that's not really what they were asking. Because the thing is, they weren't really asking. Each cashier and clerk and associate who asked me that question was performing a ritual of social responsibility to engage. To unburden us of silence as we transact. But to me, it felt like... Each person was 
burdening me with the pressure to answer a trick question. Where are you from? Where are you from? Where are you from? I just did not know the simple answers to the simple questions that people like to ask. And if people had the time for and interested in complicated answers, I'd happily have given them, but they didn't. If they actually cared at all where someone's from, it's because they want to say they've been there or they've never heard of it and feel good about having connected with another human, even in such a cursory way and for such a short time. And I wanted to feel that too, but I was so fundamentally disconnected and I would have preferred the silence. I was living in or out of my car for weeks when I flew from Chicago back to Philadelphia to meet with a lawyer. I had moved to Pennsylvania from my home in North Carolina with my ex, and since I'd fled, I'd been to Boston, Madison, St. Louis, and Bergs, both St. Peter's and Pitts. And after thoroughly walking the streets of major American cities, watching them ebb and flow with foot and vehicle traffic and seeing neighborhoods shift from shop windows to stoops and back again, and then sitting in crowded parks or plazas or squares and watching individual universes cross paths and commingle and collide, and hearing life happening at so many frequencies at once during the day and then relishing the noisiness of what a city calls silence at night. I was over it. I was in Center City, hungover from exhaustion and fear and bourbon, and I just wanted to go home, wherever that was. And it was morning, but it was already hot when I walked out of a lawyer's office where we skipped right to the big talk. Life and death decisions and possible eventualities that sound less absurd than you'd think when you've grown accustomed to hiding from a madman. And the last resort shelter you have is parked at O'Hare a thousand miles away. I was dazed, to say the least, when I walked past a Starbucks and inadvertently locked eyes with a young man sitting against the wall. And his sign said, I just need to get home. And his eyes said, I just need to get the fuck home. And I bet you can guess how that made me feel. I wish I could have seen what my face was doing because he nodded in that knowing way. I didn't have any cash handy and I had no snacks to share with him, but I couldn't just keep walking. So I asked him, are you all right? And as soon as he shook his head, he started to cry. So I sat down beside him against the wall. And he didn't look as hungry for food as he did for human contact. So I asked him, you mind if I put my hand on your shoulder? And he answered me with more head shaking and tears. He looked so tired, friend. And he nodded and cried harder. Do you need to talk? I mean, sometimes it's easier to talk to a stranger. And words just started pouring out like the tears had. Fast and gloppy and sincere. And since I had nowhere to be, I just sat and listened as despair and grief turned to frustration and defeat before yielding to a sigh that came deep from his belly. 
thanks, he said. I'm just having a tough couple weeks. Everyone just assumes I'm out here trying to stick needles in my arms. And I told him I'd learn not to assume anything about anyone's circumstances, and we sat in city silence for a moment before he asked me, So, uh, where are you from? Hearsay is typically a live storytelling show staged in Traverse City, Michigan. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram, and you can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Podbean, and Stitcher. Our podcast is produced by AJ Scott. Thank you to our venue and photography sponsors, The Workshop Brewing Company and Harp Star, who we miss so much. Find out more about Hearsay at our website, hearsaystorytelling.com. This is Karen Stein, Hearsay's founder and creative director. We hope to bring you more storytelling soon. Thanks for listening.